Well, I hope you're having a great weekend so far. Hope you've had a great week. And if you haven't had a great week, I hope someone or something here this weekend at Southview will just encourage you along the way until the next time we get together in six or seven days. Uh, But we're in our teaching series uh, that we're calling, What Are We Doing Here? And we're going to continue on the topic that we introduced this past week, simply called Up, looking at our relationship with our Heavenly Father, and it's displayed in our Southview symbol as the cross. And as we begin our time here in Walden, uh, we want to focus on what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. What's our main purpose? What's the main goal? What are we doing here? And really, as we learn to follow Jesus, we want to pattern our lives after how he modeled life to us. And as you read through scriptures, you see that Jesus has lived out his life in three different relationships. He had the the up relationship with his heavenly father. He had an in relationship with his chosen followers. And he had an out relationship with the world around him, the broken world around him. And so we see these three dimensions in Jesus's lifestyle throughout the gospels. Jesus was in constant contact with his father, whom he spoke of in a very personal, intimate, and familiar way. And really the source of Jesus' fruitfulness was in his up relationship with his father. Jesus did what he saw the father doing. And Jesus introduced his disciples to this intimate way of living. And he's calling us to this same kind of intimacy with the father that he himself has always known. And so our up relationship with Jesus is how we abide in him. As his disciples, we are to model our lives after our master. So we, the branches, must abide in the vine if we are to produce fruit from John 15. And that's why on our front doors, we have in the window etching the picture of the vine and the branches to remind us of this reality. Because our efforts are worthless if we do not have the up in our lives. We'll be fruitless without it. There's no other way. So how do we grow in this up relationship with God? Well, last week, if you were here, we looked at being filled with the Spirit. And if you weren't here, you can go to our website and download the message. It was great because it was talking about how we are the dwelling place of God. And today we're going to be focusing on two elements. We really grow in our up relationship with God by receiving from God both his word and the sacraments, the Lord's table. And that's what we're going to focus on today. Well, I'm at that stage of life right now where kind of everything cool about me is quickly disappearing. (laughs) I turned 40 this past January, and I'm starting to realize that all the stuff I used to do as a younger guy is slowly not happening anymore. Uh, You should see all the extra padding and extra gear I need to bring to flag football now. It's it's ridiculous. And uh, I even have to show up a little earlier to warm up and stretch. It's it's so sad. (laughs) It's so sad. And yet when you have kids, it is amazing what they do for your ego. For some reason, I love watching all of those talent shows. I'm kind of a sucker for it. Uh, So this summer I was watching uh, America's Got Talent. And sometimes our girls, they like to watch it with me because they like to see the kids' acts or the magic acts on the show as well. Well, we were watching it this one time and this huge guy comes onto the stage and uh, he's getting ready to, he's going to do all these strongman acts. And of course, he shows up without a shirt on and he's just got a massive chest and huge arms and he's out there doing his act and all this stuff. And then towards the end, he kind of picks up this human being and starts bench pressing him. And then he stands up and like launches the human being off the stage. And my daughter's sitting there and she's like, wow, that guy's big. I'm like, yeah, I know, it's crazy. And he's doing all of this stuff and she looks at me and she's like, dad, 
you're stronger than the him though, aren't you? Now, Cammie and I, we've made it very clear about how we're going to raise our kids. We're not going to lie to them for the most part, and I'm also a pastor. So I look at her very intently and said, you know I am. <laughs> That's right. You know I am. I mean, just the thought that my kid still sees me stronger than anybody else, I'm like, that's right. And one day, many, 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 many years from now, when you have a boyfriend who denies that, you remember I can throw human beings off a stage. <laughs> and they kind of cuddle in close, and I'm kind of still the hero around the house. Anything we're doing, they're like, dad can do anything. Now that will quickly be dissipating, but for now I'm going to enjoy every second of it. So I want us to take a look at a psalm today that really talks about how big and strong our God is and about how awesome our Father in heaven is. Because if he is where I put my hope and my security, when I get to the spaces of life where I don't like what's coming at me, or when I get into the spots of life where I realize I can't provide or I'm out of my element or it's just way beyond me, how big is my God? Now, it might be kind of a funny question because we're in church and it's like, oh yeah, God's huge. We all know that. But I just want to walk us through some stuff today in Psalm 19, and I just really want you to be able to walk away, walk out of here today, and whatever's coming at you this time of year, whatever it is you're facing, whatever you're going through, whatever illness or maybe a health scare or whatever financial or whatever relationship or even lack of relationship, whatever internal issue you may be struggling with, whatever it might be, I want you to see today in that little space of life that you're running in, you can take one look at your heavenly father and say, Psh, my father's bigger than that. That doesn't scare my God. My God is huge. And what's even more amazing is that he has given me something so precious that will guide me in all of life. So I want to walk through some stuff today and just look at the immensity and size of who God is. So turn with me to Psalm 19. And just so you're aware, God's word, the Bible, it's really integrated through all of our worship uh, gatherings as we begin our service, typically our worship leader, even as we read this morning from Psalm 100. Uh, it's, we read scripture to bring us into uh, worship, and it's in our teaching with the focus is on God's word. Um, it's, it's where we go, and it's where we uh, look to guide us. And because we believe the word of God is living and active, that's why we come to it. And one of the additional patterns that we have when we gather is who's ever teaching uh, will usually hold up the Bible and say, this is the word of God, typically before we come to our primary text for the day. And then collectively, we as a congregation will respond by saying with passionate voices, thanks be to God. Now, it's a practice that we do here at Southview because it helps us remember that God's word is a gift to us and that we want to be ready to receive whatever God has to feed us for the day. So, reading from Psalm 19, and friends, this is the word of God. Verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the ends of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. 
Now, I just love the way that this starts. In, in just six verses, David wants to get us to this concept of, wow, God is huge. David says that God is revealing who he is to us through the things he has made. And the first thing he talks about is the heaven and the sky. And day after day, they tell it in any language. He says in daytime, you can go out in the heavens to scream forth who their creator is. At nighttime, you can go out in the moon, the stars, the galaxy. They show the immensity of God. He says, I just want you to contemplate that. I want you, as you go through life, this God who has chosen to call himself father, this God who has chosen to have this loving relationship with someone like you and some like, like me, the size of that relationship that we get the privilege of entering into. I love the way David puts it, saying, you guys, nature screams it in every language. You see, God is not a being that we can discover with our five senses. Therefore, the ordinary scientific methods of discovery don't seem to work when we're trying to get to know God. In fact, we could never discover anything about God at all unless God had made a prior decision to reveal himself to us. And Psalm 19 shows us two ways in which God is revealed to us and then ends by giving us a hint about how we ought to respond to that revelation. So the first thing David starts with is creation. And so to basically kind of sum it up, it's very simple. A creation always tells us something about its creator. That's where David starts. You want to know something about my God? Look up. I don't care if it's in the daytime or nighttime. Just look up. Look around. You want to know something about my God? Just look at nature because creation always tells us something about its creator. So I want to look at that. As I was thinking through this, I was trying to think of what that looks like, and it, and it kind of hit me. You know, at home, I have creations all over our house. In my office, I have a few creations, and I actually brought a couple with me today. And uh, this is the first one. It tells you a little something about its creator. They have some pictures up on the screen if you want to look up there. What does it tell you about the creator? No, I didn't do this. It's a little kid, right? It's a little kid. That's my daughter when she was three years old. That's my daughter when she's three years old. All right, here's another one. You see that one? Here my daughter is seven years old. Now these might not mean much to you, but to me, man, I value these things because I understand the creator of them. And I can already look at these and kind of realize, wow, you know, there's some great steps taken between there, isn't there? Based on the color and the shapes as they're growing. And then there's this famous picture from Monet and all of his water lilies paintings, just brilliant artistry. And when you look at these things, it tells you something about the creator. You look at it and realize, wow, you know, that was a little kid that did that. Or wow, that's somebody with some amazing gifts and talents. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40. It's about four books to your right if you're in your Bible from Psalm 19. Isaiah 40, verse 12, Isaiah writes this. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? 
Isaiah sits down and goes, let me give you a definition of this God that we pray to, that we talk to, that if we believe in him, we have the opportunity and the privilege to actually walking with him. The first thing he says is, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Who can take all of the planet Earth's water and put it right there? Then he says, and marked off the heavens with a span. Now a span was a measurement between your thumb and your pinky. Who's marked off the measurement of the universe with a span? Verse 18, to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? Verse 28, have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. Isaiah, filled by the Spirit, writes, I want you to understand God. Creation always tells us something about his creator. And with the span of his hand, he measures the universe. So here's a few numbers to kind of show you the expanse of God. Let's say we're traveling at the speed of light. Let's say we've created miraculously a rocket ship that allows us to travel 186,000 miles per second. What's that in kilometers per hour, you ask? Good question, I'll tell you. It's 1,079,869,824,000 kilometers per hour. Don't worry, that's all right. Our rocket ship can handle it. We're gonna be okay, all right? So a few stats. Let's just cruise around planet Earth. How long to go around planet Earth in our little ship? 0.11 seconds. Oh, that was a great trip. Saw it all. Traveling to moon, on average, the moon is 240,000 miles away. Speed of light, 1.3 seconds. Let's go to the sun. You know, I've got to work on my tan, getting ready for winter, got to go to Mexico. 8.3 minutes traveling 186,000 miles per second. Or let's go out to Pluto. You know, it's no longer a planet. It's a dwarf planet. Got kind of demoted. 13.7 days it takes. Almost two weeks traveling every second, 186,000 miles per second. Let's go a little farther to Alpha Centauri, the closest star beyond our sun. At the speed of light, it would take us 4.3 years to get across our galaxy, just our galaxy, scientists would say it would average 100,000 years just across our galaxy. Isn't that mind-boggling? They estimate there's over 100 billion galaxies in our universe. And Isaiah writes, he marks off the universe with a span of his hand. Romans chapter one, verse nine. 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. In the very beginning, God said, I will show you who I am by my creation. From beginning to end, the scriptures are going to say, don't go through life and miss creation because if you miss the creation, you're gonna miss aspects of the creator. And David starts Psalm 19 and says, creation screams it out in all different languages. Just go out and take a look. Wow, there's a creator behind what we see. The heavens declare the glory of God. And then back in Psalm chapter eight, verse three, David writes this. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? 
and the son of man that you care for him. David says, when I walk out under the canopy and see what you have done, the thought comes to me, why do you give a rip about me? Why does a God of that size have any desire for me? And yet David, through all, all, all of his psalms and writings in life dictated, and yet I can't escape the fact that this God pursues me. We are the pinnacle of God's creation. And David says, let me tell you my first conclusion regarding nature. Creation always is gonna tell us something about its creator. But creation by itself is not enough. It gives us that vital sense of the glory and creativity of God, but it doesn't give us God's wisdom for daily living. It doesn't tell us how we ought to live our lives to reflect the glory of God in the world. For that, we need a second source of revelation the psalmist is going to tell us about. Revelation through what God has spoken, his word. Verse seven, so now David gets to the law of the Lord, the word of God. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them as your servant warned, in keeping them, there is great reward. So you can see where David, once he gets us to focus on the size of God by contemplating creation, then he goes, and then God, you gave us your word. God, now that we've seen a little bit of your size and that you can measure the waters of planet earth in the hollow of your hand, now I have this book in front of me. And David goes, do you know how much sweeter this is now? Do you understand how much more I should pursue this? Do you understand that there's a God that size and of immensity who created all things and now he wrote you a letter and he said, this is what you need to know about life, about how he created you, about how it's supposed to work, what's gonna happen to you at your end of time on this little speck that we called earth. And David goes, and now I get your word, your precepts, your law, and I realize, Lord, I can't believe a God like that has given me his letter. Are you kidding me? Everything we need to know is here. It's all here. Everything the human heart longs for. You long for transformation. You long to be different than you are. The word of God can totally transform your soul. You long for wisdom. You long for discernment. You long to be able to sort out the issues of life. The Bible's able to make you wise. You long for joy, for a settled peace, for deep peace. The Bible rejoices the heart. You long to see in the dark and understand the dark issues of life. The Bible enlightens your eyes. You long for something that is skillfully right and righteous. That is the word of God. You long for something that's enduring, something that is permanent, something that is trustworthy. The Bible endures forever. And David gets to this and he says, a God of that size has given us a word that is number one, perfect. That means it's without blemish. It is complete, lacking nothing. Perfection here speaks of wholeness. It has lost nothing. And its perfection is the basis within which all of the other characteristics of God's word is found. Within God's word, we find everything we need to know about who God is and who we are. It tells us about the devastating effects of our sin and the perfect sacrifice of our Savior. It tells us all we need to know about eternity and about how we can come to be in fellowship with God. 
It is complete. God, when I see your size, then it's easy for me to look at this and go, well, yeah, this isn't lacking. I don't think a God of that size who created the magnitude that we talked about, now he can't write a book? That's crazy. As God's word is perfect, its effect on the person who reads it and applies it, it calls us back into a right relationship with God. It restores us or returns us to God. It is God's mean by which he draws us back into right relationship with himself. And this is a constant necessity in our spiritual life, to be drawn back into fellowship with God when we allow actions or attitudes to draw us away. This is one of the functions of God's word. David goes, I come to your law, it's perfect. Then he says, it's sure. I can stake my life on it because you are the one that sustains my life. Now some translations use the word trustworthy. We can rely on it. When all around us there's conflicting messages as to what truth is, God's word does not change. It is sure. It is trustworthy. The idea here is that those who are truly looking for answers, who are coming to scripture with an open mind, God will reveal himself in such a way through his word that it will make them wise. And as Psalm 111 verse 10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The word of God is sure. It will instruct within the open-minded reader a fear of God, which is where wisdom begins. And as that fear of God grows, we will grow in our understanding of who he is and how he works in this world. This too is part of our spiritual development because God's word makes us wise. Without it, we're gonna stumble around in the foolishness of our own thoughts and desires. So I can trust what this says because God is the one who created all that he's talking about. So it's not just perfect, it's trustworthy. And then he says, the precepts of the Lord are right. Now a precept is a directive which if followed will lead one to the goal of faithful living. It carries with it the idea of orders or directions. Kind of like a mark line on a, a road map which if followed will allow you to go where you want to go. So God's directions, his precepts, they're always right. They never mislead. They never take you down a dead end. They are never wrong or out of date. I was driving up to uh, Bethany Chapel last week for a meeting and uh, plugged in Siri and said, Siri, take me up here. I hadn't been up to the church for a while, so I'm cruising up Crowchild. Siri says, exit here, it's Flanders Avenue. Flanders Avenue, as you know, is under construction. So I was like, well, I can't exit here. So I go up and exit on 33rd Ave. Siri says, take a left, go back onto Crowchild to go back down to Flanders Avenue. I was like, are you serious? You're wrong, Siri. God's word, never wrong. Never out of date. Always gets you to your destination. It's impossible to grow increasingly conformed to the image of Christ without his direction. And it's not just another manuscript that man came up with. Scripture itself testifies that this is breathed out by the Spirit of God through man. But not only does this psalm give us description of the Word of God, it speaks to us about the desire for God's Word. Look at what David says in verse 10. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Notice that he talks about the desirability and the value of God's word within the context of both wealth and that which is sweet to the taste. If the Bible is God's word and if we're in love with God, then his word should be precious to us, like gold, sweet to us like honey. 
Now for Jews living in Jesus' day, there were three separate educational venues, and the first one was called Bet Sefer. And so at the ages of six to 12, Jewish children began their uh, formal education. Both boys and girls would attend the synagogue where they would learn to read and write. And their textbooks was the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Now the goal was not just to learn how to read it, but ultimately to memorize it was part of their training. Now imagine what that was like. As a six-year-old, you would go to the synagogue and you would sit beneath the feet of the most respected teacher in the city. And he would greet you with a slate. And he would put on that slate a big blob of honey. And then he would go and remove the ancient scroll of the Torah. And as you sat there, a six-year-old, speechless and in awe, the rabbi would tell you to put that honey into your mouth. And then they would read this verse from the Torah, from Psalm 119. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Now we use this verse in our children's ministry when we begin our large group teaching before we get ready for teaching because we want all of our kids here at Southview to understand the gift they've been given in God's word and to come to love the sweet taste of their heavenly father's words. So just a little sidebar, do you know that we're averaging between 420 and 450 kids here on weekends? All last year we averaged 300. We've jumped up over about 150 kids just in the last month. We need more people who can say, man, I want to help lead as many kids as possible passionately follow Christ. I want to see these kids come to understand who God is and have a hunger for his word. This is my quick plug to say, man, we are desperately in need of more people who can come serve in our children's ministry, especially on Saturday night and Imago Day. So what are you going to do? Call me. I'd love to come in on Monday morning and be like, oh, I can't get to anything I was supposed to do because I have 75 voice messages to follow up with people getting involved in children's ministry. Call me. Serious, call me. (laughs) David says, God has given me his word. And if that's really the size and power of our creator, maybe when it comes to things in this book that I don't get or I don't like or I disagree with, maybe I should be the one to change. Maybe I can trust this if that's the size of the God who gave it to me. Maybe I can look at this and say, you know what? Maybe this is right and not my way of wanting to do life because maybe he's a little bit bigger than me. And I've created some stuff through life with some crayons. Maybe I've done some watercolors, but nothing compared to what he's put together. And then David says this in verse 11. Moreover, talking about the laws, the word of God that you've given me, Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. See, a God this big has a word that is perfect, trustworthy, right, and a loving creator both warns and rewards his creation. David says, now I get this book. It's a book from the one that designed life. Now, here's how it works. There's stuff in here that will warn you from making a mess out of this life. There's stuff in here that's gonna warn you about destroying everything that I've put together. There's stuff in here that's gonna tell you to avoid this and that looks good, but it's simply a trap, people. There's stuff in here and David gets to it and he says, now I get it. The one who created all that I am and see and do and know and experience, all that science continues to explore and explore and explore, all that God has put together in the breadth of his hand is now a God that looks at me and says, because I created you, now here's some guidelines. It's perfect, it's trustworthy, it's right. Don't doubt it. 
And yeah, there's gonna be some warnings in here, but this is also how I bless you. He doesn't say for keeping them, there is great reward, but in keeping them, there is great reward. In other words, it's not, well, if I learn to be unselfish on earth, then I'm gonna get a great reward when I get to heaven. If you think about it, that's actually a pretty selfish reason to be unselfish, right? No, the psalmist's view is, as I learn to live in unselfishness, I'll gradually discover that here and now is the most rewarding way of life. The good life that God reveals to us is its own reward. And lastly, then David says, we also need to consider our response to what God shows and says to us. So David goes on in verse 12. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sin. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. So verse 12 speaks of hidden faults or those which we have a hard time discerning. Now, all of us, we do things or say things or approach things with the wrong attitude, not because we intentionally set out to do the wrong thing, but because we're spiritually insensitive to things. And as we dig into God's word and allow it to dwell richly within us, God begins through his word to show us those things in our life that we could no longer, no, in no other way see. They're hidden faults. But secondly, verse 13 says that God's word reveals to us or keeps us back from presumptuous sins, sins which we willfully commit but presume we can get away with. Or presume that because we've judged them to be insignificant, therefore somehow God sees them as insignificant as well. So these two areas, hidden faults, those sins which we're unaware, and presumptuous sins are two areas which set us back in our spiritual journey. And only by regularly and intentionally reading God's word can we hope to gain victory in these areas. As Hebrews 4.12 promises, the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. How desperately we need that. A tool to tell us the truth about our feelings, our thoughts, and our intentions. Because it's easy for us to be fooled, isn't it? And most often it is we who fool ourselves. See, God's word enables us to avoid being fooled because when we read it, God opens our eyes of our understanding and enables us to see the truth about who we are. And then lastly, a God this big is worthy of our thoughts and actions. Verse 14, let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So what's the response to a God this size? Simply saying, God, if that is you, then who am I that you're mindful of me? Who am I that you love me? Who am I that you want to walk with me? So here's my response. May my actions and my thoughts represent you in light of who you are and what you've done by giving your son to creation. Now, God, may my finances, may my relationships, may my thoughts, may my actions, may my words, God, everything about me, how I practice business, the way I treat my employers, the way I respect my employees, how I deal with my parents, how I deal with my kids. God, in light of who you are and that you are mindful of me, you cannot, will not ever take your eyes off of me. May my life be lived in a way that pleases you. And I get to walk with the creator of the universe. Doesn't that blow you away? Man, it's amazing. 
So allow me to suggest three simple ways that you can put this practice, this teaching into practice in your everyday life, even this week, when it comes to God's word. First, read it. Get a plan, get a schedule. Go get an app, download an app, a year through the Bible app, read it. Second, reflect upon it as you read it, asking this question, God, what are you saying to me? And then third, respond to it by saying, what am I gonna do about it? And I encourage you to do all three of these steps in relationship with other people, life on life, because we need accountability. These are just three practical things that you can just start this week to help you grow in your up relationship with Christ as we continue to be formed to the image of Jesus as we walk together as a community of faith. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we've been able to look into this awesome psalm. And I do pray, God, that you give us a love for your word, never to take it for granted, never to walk away, never to substitute anything else, but to live and move and have our being in your word. God, thank you for such a wonderful gift, sweet like honey, more precious than gold. And we pray that you will use it today to somehow in your, in your mysterious way to draw people to yourself, to bring joy, to bring clarity, to inspire worship, really to produce lives that passionately want to follow you. And now, fathers, we come to this table to receive from you. I ask that your hand would be upon our grade seven students. I pray that you would lead them in the knowledge and obedience of your word, that they may serve you in this life and dwell with you in the life to come. Father, make that so for all of us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.